Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome ad nauseum listeners to episode 30 of our little podcast. As always, my name is David Noe. I'm here with Jeff Winkle. How are you today, Jeff? I'm feeling really good today. Thanks, are Dave. You? Yeah. You ready to get back into the underworld? Yeah, I think I kind of shook off um, most of the gloom from last week. But and the doom. And the doom. It's still mm-hmm. a little creepy and eerie and, and dank. Right. Yeah, if I can say dank. You can. Yeah. But you're ready now to go back in I'm with Odysseus? Yes, exactly right. Meet yeah. some more of the folks, find out what made them tick. That's right. All right. Yeah. Do we have our shout out this week? We do. Our shout out this week goes to uh, Mr. Paul Boyer, who is a teacher at the Glendore Preparatory Academy in Peoria, Arizona. I don't think it's Glendore. Uh, did I say Glendore? You tried to cross it with Gryffindale, I think, is what you I, were doing. I think it was, uh, I was thinking of Gondor from, from Tolkien. <laughs> no, no, he's at Glendale. Glendale. Okay. He teaches junior high Latin there. Uh, he is a state senator. Amazing. He got his hands on the levers of power. Yes. Yes. And apparently he's also up the, the push-ups champion. Wow. Right. At Glendale. Glendale. Yes. So you get up to seven or eight consecutive and that makes you the champ. <laughs> nice job, Paul. Way to go. Well done, Paul. And he's also, he's mossing it up with you. Oh, he is. He's learning Greek with me via the moss method because uh, he's going for his master's degree. Ah. As it turns out, you don't actually get credit for this course. Oh, you don't? No, no. Okay. But you do get a lot of knowledge and then you can later, you know, swap it for some credit, I guess. But is, is, the knowledge is the most important thing anyway, right? Yes, knowledge is of the course. key. Right. So that's our shout out. Yes. Now we're going on to the quote? Well, not quite. I have a fun fact I'd like right, to share. All right, drop it on so, us, Dr. Wendt. So uh, this is where in March, in the middle of March Madness, are you a basketball fan? You... I, I am familiar with Dr. Naismith and his invention. Uh, <laughs> Are you familiar with March Madness and the, the NCAA uh, men's basketball tournament? I have heard of it, yes. Okay, right. Something about brackets? Yes, exactly right. Okay. So it's it's one of the few uh, sports things that I get into. You're all in? I, I wouldn't say I'm all in. You know, 60% in. Okay. Yeah, but enough to... to Turn to, yourself about? Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly right. Um, it's a lot of fun. So in the tournament, one of the perennial powers over the last few decades is, is Georgetown University, right? Right. Uh, Big East uh, School. Um, and they are the Hoyas, and uh, that's their mascot. And their mascot is a bulldog. Okay. And um, for years, I always assumed that, uh, you know, what is a Hoya? I don't right? know. It, right. I always assumed that because the mascot was a bulldog, it was some kind of breed of dog, mm-hmm. as far as I know. That makes sense. Very reasonable. Not true, though. No. And uh, so the, the story is, uh, what a Hoya is, I guess back in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, the Georgetown teams were known as the the stone wall for whatever reason, the mm, stone wall. And probably because of agility. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. So, but this is also back in the day when uh, everybody going to a, a four-year university would be taking some Greek and Latin. Of course. Right. And so apparently in the late 1800s, one student decided to come up with a, a Greco-Roman cheer. And for they the came team. up with Hoya? Well, the, 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 the cheer was Hoya Saxa. Which is a combination between the Greek hoyos, like such or what, yeah. and saxa. Qualitative adjective. Rocks. Huh. Right. Hoya saxa. Hoya saxa, like what rocks? <laughs> right. This is real. <laughs> this is real. Unbelievable. So he was, he was, um, you know, he was, he'd be amazed at the stone wall, right? right. Look at these guys. Hoya right. saxa. Incredible. What rocks. And so apparently that is still a cheer that the students will yell. And sometime in the early 20th century, they just simply shortened it to hoya. We should just end the episode right now because that's the most interesting thing that's going to happen today. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, they're now my favorite team, Hoya Saxa. It, it's one of these things that like popped up, you know, how, you know how things pop up. Yes. Right. And I saw that I said, no, come on, that can't be you, real. You were incredulous. I was incredulous, uh-huh. but I had it confirmed by a couple other sources. And and I saw, now I saw you're it. credulous. I thought that'd be a perfect thing for the podcast. Hoya. Hoya. That is incredible. Yes. All right, but we have to get down to business. Um, and you have our opening quote today, right? I do. It is from a man who's a favorite of mine, Mr. J. Gresham Machen, a student of Greek and Latin back in the old days. And this comes from his work of 1923, uh, known as Christianity and Liberalism, page 65. He says, in speaking of paganism, we are not using a term of reproach. Ancient Greece was pagan, but it was glorious. And the modern world has not even begun to equal its achievements. 
What then is paganism? The answer is not really difficult. Paganism is that view of life which finds the highest goal of human existence in the healthy and harmonious and joyous development of existing human faculties. Very different is the Christian ideal. Paganism is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature, whereas Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. Mm. I really like that quote. It's, it's simple, but it's there's so much packed in this, those yes, few direct. lines. Yeah. It's so nice, I wish I had written it. Yeah, that's really great. Now, how does, that, how does that tie into what we're talking about today? Well, I think what we would like to do at the very end of today's episode, as we leave behind our catabasis, we leave behind all of the dead, and we ascend with Odysseus back to the world above and on with his adventures, we were going to talk just a little bit about the Greek view of the afterlife and yeah. contrast it momentarily with the Christian view of resurrection. Yes. Now, yes. We, we try to keep things on this podcast very ecumenical. Right. Uh, not in the sense of different confessions, but in the broadest sense of ecumene, right? In embracing everything. Because we want listeners who are uh, Christian, who are, you know, of any faith persuasion or no faith persuasion at all, because our theme is the classics. Yes. And yet in this particular episode, it seems apropos of Odysseus, because people are going to be asking questions, I think. Isn't this just like a resurrection story? He yeah. goes down, he comes back. So we're going to talk about that right. a little bit. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I think that this is also um, the book, and I think where we have Odysseus confronting the deepest questions of existence. Absolutely. Right? His, so, his own mortality, mm -hmm. the meaning of his life, if it has any. Right. Definitely. Right. So that's what we're going to give the listeners today, isn't it? That's our. Uh, that's what we have on offer. That's what's on the platter. That's what we're serving up. That's what we're bringing to the table, as they like to say. Piping it, hot. That's right. And yep. that's our gustatory adventure. So let's get right into it then. And let's. we're going to start out with what's called the Parade of Women. So uh, just to uh, remind our listeners, when we last left Odysseus, uh, at the edge of the underworld, he, he never really, he, he never actually enters, right? The underworld comes to him. And he has had encounters with his mother. Um, he's met with Tiresias. He's already accomplished the reason uh, Circe sent him there. Circe uh, uh, tells him, you got to meet with Tiresias. He's going to tell you how to get home. It's a knowledge quest. It's a knowledge quest. And he got his nuggets of wisdom. He did. More than he bargained for. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, now the, uh, the book doesn't end there. There's so much more to come. Yeah, it's kind of like a tangent. But it's so artfully and, I would say, subtly done. Yeah. Uh, you're down there in the underworld or at its entrance. You might as well meet all of the other famous souls and shades yes. that populate Greek myth. It, it really reminds me of uh, Socrates at the end of the Apology, mm -hmm. where um, he's been condemned to death and he starts to muse upon what the afterlife might be like. Definitely. And um, he says... Either one, it's like the best night of sleep you ever had, mm -hmm. right? And I th Socrates was a guy, I think he liked, he liked to sleep in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an eternal, sleep, <laughs> eternal no, sleep, no sensation, no trouble, the alarm never goes off. Right, exactly. He says, or, and I think this is, you know, uh, choice B is what Socrates would hope it would be, is that I get to interview and question people from all the epic past. He, yes. he mentions a few names that he He would, mentions Achilles. He, does he mention Achilles? He does. And he says, I get to, I get to talk to... I could keep doing what I've been doing in the Agora right. forever. Right. Right. Go around gadflying people, yeah. asking them, so Achilles, what really is courage? <laughs> exactly right. Achilles is not going to have much of an idea. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, because he's more, he's more brute than brain. Yes. But, but thankfully, as we established last week, you can't really be harmed in the underworld. So Socrates is going to be okay right. if Achilles doesn't like the elenctic treatment Socrates gives him. There's plenty more. There's plenty more people to to, to pick on. Right? right. So I see Odysseus here, very much like uh, like Socrates. Is that okay? He's he's met with Tiresias. He could say, okay, I got what I came for, and let's let's hit the let's hit the boat. But he says, mm -mm, this is another opportunity to 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 learn, to see, to hear, to smell, to smell. It's going to be a little little rank down there. Yeah, I think. probably so. <laughs> This reminds me of uh, just a core aspect of Odysseus's character, that insatiable curiosity. Right. He's, he's, got, he's got to learn, and if, if there's a chance to learn something, he's going to take it. It doesn't really matter if it's relevant to his quest um, or getting home. He's always going to take these detours. Absolutely. Yeah. So the women start appearing before him. They are shepherded up to him by Persephone. Read a little bit from the text, would you, Dave? Yes. So this is from Lombardo. Uh, then the women came, sent by Persephone. All those who had been the wives and daughters of the heroes of old, they flocked together around the dark blood. But I wanted to question them one at a time. The best way I could think of to question them 
was to draw the sharp sword from beside my thigh and keep them from drinking the blood all at once. They came up in procession then, and one by one they declared their birth, and I questioned them all. The first one I saw was high-born Tyro, who said she was born of flawless Salmoneus and was wed to Cratheus, a son of Aeolus. She fell in love with a river, divine Anipeus, the most beautiful of all the rivers on earth. This is a common problem, isn't it? Yes. Falling in love with the river. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. And right. she used to play in his lovely streams. But the earth shaker took Enipeus's form and lay with her in the swirling eddies near the river's mouth. Yeah, the swirling eddies. That was my college band. Really? Yeah, I played bass. Oh, uh, no way. No, well, maybe not. But I always thought the swirling eddies, that'd be a great name for a band. I got a good one. You'd, oh, really? Are you going to share it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Liquid future. Oh. Greek grammatical term. Yes. If a stem ends in a liquid or a nasal, yeah. it's a liquid future. That's great. Now, that sounds to me like a, a band like like the Grateful Dead or Fish, you know, someone that's just, they're going to get up there and they're going to play. 15 minute set, yeah. something like that. Or each song, kind of an extendo version. Really? Right? Yeah. I was thinking more in terms of high flying guitars and screeching operatic vocals. Oh, I can, I can see that. Yeah. Somewhere in, the, in between, kind of more Van Halen-y. Okay. Yeah. We'll go with it. All right. So why are these, uh, why are these women here in the underworld and why is Odysseus interested in them? You know what? I, I have no idea. This is a passage that's always puzzled me. Okay. Because, um... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, so Perfe- per- Perfe- <laughs> Persephone, she kind of ushers these women up there, right? Should we do that over? Should, should I laugh at the co-host? Just, just leave it in. All right. That's right. We're human, right? Too human. But Persephone ushers these women up, right? But there's no reason given. She mm-hmm. just she just does it. And then Odysseus gets them in line with his sword. Uh, again, that also puzzles me. Why are these these shades with no huggable portions? They want blood. But I know, but why are they afraid of a sword? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's one of those questions you don't ask. Biological. Right. So why are they here? So this this passage has always puzzled me. Um, and it's I because they want to get back to the world above. Yes. The underworld is no place to be. It's uh, uh, no place to stay. Right. And they must have made some, if we're going to try to analyze it, make it make sense philosophically, if not biologically, they must be under some kind of a delusion or confusion that if they can just drink some of that blood, they can be restored to life and, right. and come back. Right. The, the, and, and all they want is knowledge, too. They yes. want to know about what's happening in, in the in the, the upper world, right? What's happening to those they love. Yeah. But, so, but still this question about, you know, why all of these women? Well, we can get into that. Okay. So the first one who comes along, as we said, uh, having read from Lombardo, is Tyro. And she was intending to marry the river god Anipeus. But Poseidon interrupted that and slept with her, and she is the mother of Peleus and Neleus. Now, Peleus is the uncle of Jason, the famous adventurer who went on the Argo right. after the Golden Fleece. He's, he's, he's the bad guy in that. Peleus is the wicked uncle. Yes. It's the Hamlet story. Yes, exactly. Right. So as you read through these various encounters in this parade of women, what's your main takeaway? Why do you think Homer puts this in here? Well, I'm of two minds on this. Uh, First of all, I think he wants to entertain the listener with a backstory of all of the individuals and persons who are already known. If the listener wants to go back and listen to uh, History and the Trojan War, where we talk about Mycenae a little bit and so forth, I'm of the persuasion that these poems, epics, they represent the end of a long development of different Mm storylines. So if you are hearing the Odyssey for the first time, you're getting cameo appearances of all of these famous characters and Homer is indulging the audience with a little bit of back information. It's kind of like the catalog of ships from the Iliad. Yeah, book two. He's showing off. Yeah, he's showing off his his um, geographical knowledge, his um, his knowledge of uh, the various city states and and peoples of Greece. Here too, I, I think that um, you know he's mentioning stories associated with Thebes, uh, stories associated with Iolcus. Also Mycenae. That's coming up as well. Right. So that's the first part, just a general showing off and backfilling of information about these mythological characters. Yes. The, the second and more difficult question is, why women in particular, and why are these all stories of violence? Most of these are stories of one god or another, in this one, the Earthshaker Poseidon. In the next one, Antiope, she slept with Zeus. In the third one, Alcmene, the mother of Heracles, who also slept with Zeus. Then uh, Megare, Heracles' wife. These are all stories of violence, violent passion. So, so why bring them before the readers? Because it's it's a little bit gruesome. It is gruesome. Do you think he's there's kind of a mockery of the gods here? 
I think that's the most likely explanation. It's, it's the most charitable explanation, and it accords very well with a theme that Ovid picks up on later. So you might say that Virgil is the most Homeric in overall sensibility. He certainly captures the spirit of the Iliad better, I would say, than any other mm-hmm. subsequent poet. But Ovid, I think, uh, gets the playfulness of Homer in his Metamorphoses. And so the Metamorphoses is really just a catalog of the crimes of the gods. Right. Particularly in the story of Arachne and Athena. Yes. Uh, Arachne starts to weave a tapestry, and in this tapestry are all of these same violent episodes. Yeah. And it enrages Athena, and she punishes Arachne for her hubris. Yes, turns her into a spider. Correct. Yep. So this shows, once again, that the Homeric gods are not moral in the sense that we would expect. A theme that we've made uh, prominent in the podcast many times. Right. Um, I think relying upon Dodds, I think, here, uh, it's not the case that the Homeric gods are like the the god of Plato and the Stoics, certainly not like the god of the Christians. Mm -hmm. They are just really, really powerful beings, and they do as they please, and the consequences are often horrific for mortals. Right. It's a difference, uh, not so much of of kind, but of, of power. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think this is also kind of reminds me about just how extraordinary this Greek moment is. Um, you know, this very first piece of, of literature that we get, um, Homer doesn't hold back in kind of pointing the finger at the gods. Yes. It's, it's, there's kind of this, this fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is extraordinary. You don't, I don't think you see that in any other uh, kind of ancient culture of that time from the same geographical area. Not that I'm aware of. No, the go- gods are to be cowered in front of, mm-hmm. right? And here Homer calls them out. So next, after Tyro, comes the, the mortal woman Antiope, slept with Zeus, and she was the mother of Amphion and Zethus. And these individuals are the founders of the famous city of Thebes. So there we get the background on, well, where did Thebes come from? Mm-hmm. Well, this is where it is. Founded by uh, a noble line from Zeus himself. And after Zeus and Antiope, what do we have? After Antiope, we, um, well, there's, we don't have time to go through all of these, no. of these mini stories, but uh, we famously get uh, kind of the Theban saga in miniature. We mm-hmm. hear about um, Epicasta, who's probably better known as Jocasta, both the mother and wife of, of Oedipus. Right. Um, Let me read a little bit of that from yeah, Lombardo. Yeah, please do. I saw Oedipus's mother, beautiful Epicasta, who unwittingly did a monstrous deed, marrying her son who had killed his father. The gods soon brought these things to light, yet for all his misery, Oedipus still ruled in lovely Thebes by the gods' dark designs. But Epicasti, overcome by her grief, hung a deadly noose from the ceiling rafters and went down to implacable Hades' realm, leaving behind for her son all of the sorrows a mother's avenging spirits can cause. So once again... um mortals, and again, mortal women suffering at the hands of, of, of the gods. Yes, yeah. and a miniature of the whole Theban saga. Sophocles later turns this into three plays, of course, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone, but the plot doesn't have to be invented. It's right here in Homer, all right. spelled out, all the important elements, the incest, the parasite, the suicide, everything. Right, he's basically saying there's no need to read uh, or go to a Sophocles play. It's, it's all right here. <laughs> yeah. It's a one-stop shop. It's a little bit anachronistic. Yeah, well, yeah, very, yeah, very true. Yeah. Now, one of the questions I always ask myself when um, I read this with students, uh, whenever Homer does the story within a story, is, um, is there a lesson here for Odysseus to learn? He's here. He's seeing this. He's hearing it. What's the takeaway? That's um, a very good question. So, I mean, is it again? The lesson is ultimately you can't trust the gods, Odysseus. You have to trust yourself. We've seen that before. I think that's definitely one of the lessons. Right. And one of the stories that comes up is uh, the is this woman Chloris, um, who's being fought over by suitors. Mm-hmm. So there's a clear, uh, I think, kind of warning about Odysseus what he's going to face when he gets home. Mm-hmm. So you know what what are kind of the little mini lessons. Now, that's not the be-all, end-all. Again, it could be just Homer showing off what a great poet is, poet he is, and the stuff that he knows. But I think to tie it to the bigger narrative, I think that's always a pertinent question to ask. Yes, that's definitely going to be the case with the next two characters that we're going to look at, which are Agamemnon and Achilles. But before that, I just want to mention two more women in the parade of heroes, the parade of of mortal women. We passed over Alcmene, uh, mother of Heracles Mm. and uh, Heracles' wife, but let's mention Leda, the wife of Tyndareus. So Leda is the mother of the two sets of twins. She's the mother of Clytemnestra and Helen, as well as 
uh, Castor and Pollux. That's right. And she has uh, Zeus as the father of two of them, the father of Helen and Castor, and the mortal man Tyndareus, the father of Clytemnestra and of Pollux. And this is another one of uh, Zeus's bizarre, violent, horrible exploits. And Homer just sets it out there for us to look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, at least it's hard for me to, to know how to read these kinds of things that, you know, that kind of that kind of sexual violence against women, it's a taboo in in most, if not all, civilized societies. And the Greeks are no exception. However, it's, it, there are questions about, you know, what can the gods get away with? Uh, because they're not moral. They're just deathless. Deathless. Right. Right. So I don't have a, a final point here. It just it's... I don't know what to make of it, you know, even trying to kind of, to answer that question, you know, well, what's the lesson here? What is mm-hmm. Homer trying to say? Um, are we supposed to blame these gods for doing these deeds? Is Homer saying, look, look at how horrible they are? Or is this, this, you know, one of these double standards where the gods can do this because they're gods? Mm-hmm. I think that the easiest explanation is probably the least satisfying, and that is that uh, Homer records it because he believes it's true, that it's historical. Right? And you it, have to record things if they're horrible and they happened. Yeah. So, and that's where it ends. Well, it ends in the sense that I don't think any other explanation can be given, but it's not at all satisfying. It doesn't answer the question, why? No, yeah. because we see this primarily as a mode of entertainment. Yeah. And this is not entertaining. This is appalling in a lot of ways. But from Homer's perspective, if it's true, he has to record it. Hmm. So there are a number of other women here that Odysseus meets in the parade. There's Iphimedea, the... Uh, mother of the Goliaths, Otis and Ephialtes, who tried to threaten the gods. Apollo dispatched them. There's Phaedra, Procris, Ariadne, Myra, Clymene, on and on and on. Finally, Alcinous, just like you might want to, interrupts <laughs> and asks about Odysseus' companions. Where are they? What are they doing? Right. He's, he's uh, interested in the, the Trojan War. Correct. Right. He wants more. Yes. As all of us are, you know, it's enough of the parade of women. Let's hear about the men you fought with at Troy. So Persephone then scatters the women. She uses some kind of a broom or an aerosol or something. To, I think it was a Swiffer. Was it off? I think it, <laughs> deep woods. Yeah, I like, yeah, she's, she, she just sprays them down. Yeah, with yeah. some raid. And then the ghosts of the women disappear. And we meet the first then of, I think, three important heroes from Troy. It's going to be Agamemnon. It's going to be then Ajax and Achilles. Which I think is the big. Uh, oh, that, did I get the order wrong? I think it's Achilles before Ajax, right. so but Achilles is the is the big uh, Agamemnon, and then the matinee right, yes. is Achilles, Achilles, and then Ajax, Ajax wraps it up. Right. So we're going to get into that after the break. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the good people of Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Jeff, I understand that you just received your Racial 6 in the mail just a couple weeks ago. Yep. How are you liking that machine? It's great. Um, I have never had better home-brewed coffee in my life. Incredible. Compared to the machine I was using, it's it's not even close. What did you do with that old machine? Can it, you say on air or is it too gruesome? Um, have you seen the movie Office Space where they go to town with the baseball bats on the on the fax machine? Something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's similar to that. Okay. Yeah. But not the ratio six. No. No, no. That sits on your counter like a work of art. It is. It's beautiful. My 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 boys are they're fascinated by it. Have they given up video games and television to watch it brew coffee? Well let's not let's not get crazy okay. here. But when I took it out of the box, I mean I think one of my sons asked, is that a, is that a robot? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you like the bloom stage. The bloom stage gets rid of all the carbon dioxide, yep. right? And then what's after the bloom? After you bloom, you brew. You brew. Yep. And finally, what? And then it's ready to go. It's just ready, doesn't it? The right. little light comes on. Yes. And you pour it out and uh, it's coffee paradise. Right. You know, and I was skeptical that... Um, oh, come on. You you told me that, you know, this machine, it doesn't have one of those... I had been <gasps> crowing and trumpeting about the ratio eight for yes. more than a year. It is. And one of the things that you were talking about, there's no like this hot griddle that it sits on. Right. Like, well, the coffee's going to go cold in no, 10 no, minutes, no. but it doesn't. You've got the carafe to put it the, in. That, that carafe is amazing. Yes, right? you could transport plutonium to and from the nuclear power if, plant. If so, you wanted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how can our wonderful listeners get some of this racial coffee action? What should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com right now and get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. And to do that, you yeah, at the website, you enter the coupon code ANCO, uh, get your 15% off, and be very, very happy. That will be one coffee decision you will not regret. This episode also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett is an independent publisher, um, in business since 1972, and they bring the best of classics and humanities to a wide audience with affordable, attractive offerings. 
And Jeff, I know you like to read a wide variety of literature from the classical era. What do you like best about Hackett? Um, you know, the, the, it, these are one of the few books that you can judge by their covers. Okay. Right? I love their, like, the cover to the Bacchae, mm-hmm. which is uh, arguably my favorite Greek is Bob Dylan on that cover? Uh, no, it's uh, it's Elvis Presley. Oh, You know, yeah. the modern Dionysus coming to town to right. drive the young women crazy? Yes. It's perfect. And, and Hackett's are masters at taking, you know, contemporary photos and matching them in theme to these ancient works. Mm. And, and then you open it up and you have these really wonderful, accessible, easily digestible translations. Yes, I was just hearing from a, a loyal listener this week, a gentleman down in Alabama. Maybe we'll give him a shout out someday. And he was saying that he loves about the Lombardo translation, mm-hmm. that it doesn't have any of the archaic stuffiness of yes. some of the older ones. Yes. It's really immediate. And I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Now they're coming out with a new Aristotle, the Hackett Aristotle, translated by CDC Reeve. Mm. And uh, some of that is already in process. Does Hackett have titles on ancient Rome? Oh, they get it all. They have offerings well beyond uh, the field of classics as well. Um, it's Go to their website, hackettpublishing.com, and, and see for yourself. Yes, and if you go there, uh, our loyal listeners, you can receive 20% off on any order as well as free shipping. How do they do that? They go to Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, hackettpublishing.com, and they enter the code AN2021 in the box, which asks for that there coupon code. Don't hesitate. Check out hackettpublishing.com today. Do it. Jeff, our third excellent sponsor for today's podcast is Ad Astra Coffee Roasters of Hillsdale, Michigan, to the stars with great coffee. Yes, Dave, Patrick and his crew there in South Central Michigan, they really know how to roast those beans. Yeah, they do. And they have this wonderful poetry series. If you like to drink coffee and read poetry, then this is the product for you. Each of the foil bags, which keeps your beans fresh, features a poem by such poets as Wallace Stevens, Maria Rilke, and William Wordsworth. They've got the Tenebris series, they have the Las Lajas Microlot, and from Guatemala, the Huehuetenango. Oh, you enjoy saying that, I don't do. you? I do. Haven't, I haven't tasted that one yet. But if it's as good as the others, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Everything I've tried so far has been, has been great. So listeners, if you haven't checked out their website, you should take a look. It explains how they use an old-fashioned method of roasting with a giant repurposed roaster. Do we, we have an update on what's been repurposed? I don't know what it was repurposed from, but yeah. I think in a previous life, before it made a catabasis down to Hillsdale, it was also a roaster. It was. Yes, but they, they have repurposed. It. Gotcha. Um, and they, on that website, they explain where they source these beans. Uh, it's really well done across the board. Yeah. And each of their beans is roasted and, well, first selected. It has to score above an 84 on the roasting scale. And so that's high. It is quite high. Yes. Nothing makes it into their repurposed roaster, which is not first graded appropriately. That's right. So how can some of our AN friends get some of this great coffee, Jeff? Uh, and friends, go to Ad Astra Roasters at Ad Astra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com. Uh, check out some of their delicious offerings. And by entering the, the coupon code ANAA, you get 10% off uh, your order, and you can also sign up for a monthly subscription. Yeah, check it out, listener. All right. So as promised, um, we're going to see Odysseus meet um, some of the men that he fought with at, at Troy, starting with with Agamemnon. Um, Dave, you want to read a little Greek? Yes, I do. I, this got, episode? I have four lines here. These are lines 397 through 400 and here in Book 11. It goes like this. Atra idei kudistawanox androon Agamemnon. Tis nusaker edamas satane legaos thanatoia. Nicely done. Well, thank you. And how does Lombardo translate those lines? Well, he says this, Son of Atreus, king of men, most glorious Agamemnon, what death laid you low? Did Poseidon sink your fleet at sea after hitting you hard with hurricane winds? Or were you killed by enemy forces on land as you raided their cattle and flocks of sheep or fought to capture their city and women? Odysseus, he doesn't want to be the only one uh, plagued by Poseidon. No. <laughs> he says, please, please tell me somebody else is yeah, in Misery this loves company. You're down here because of old Posey, right? Right, exactly right, right. But um, Agamemnon tells us uh, when he comes forward, this awful account of his of his own demise upon his upon his return. Do you agree that he comes off much more sympathetically here in the as a ghost than than in the Iliad? Oh, he's a terrible monster in the Iliad. Right. Agamemnon is just filled with hubris. Right. And uh, not someone you'd want to spend any time with. 
definitely a brute. But here, yes, in the underworld, shuffling around the DMV, you got to have sympathy for the guy. <laughs> right. There's just no way around it. Right. Can you read a little bit of uh, what transpires next? I think this is the uh, the Evie Rue prose translation. I mean, it's not Lombardo, but it has a little charm. Yeah. Um, I'll get to that in just a second, but I, I wanted just to um, t- talk a little bit about Agamemnon's story upon his return. So he's um, his wife, Clytemnestra, uh, has taken up with a, a lover, Aegisthus. His cousin. His cousin, that's yes. right, exactly, exactly right. And uh, Clytemnestra's been nursing this this grievance for the last 10 years because of the sacrifice of their daughter, Iphigenia. Yes, right? so she has actually three reasons, right? Yeah. Three reasons to be enraged at uh, Agamemnon. Those are the two. Yes. The Aegisthus and um, the sacrifice of Iphigenia at Aulis. And the third one? What's the third one? Well, he brought home a girlfriend. Oh, right, Cassandra. Cassandra. Right. And when they arrive, this this is Aeschylus, right? Yes. His Agamemnon, the Oresteia trilogy. Uh, he kind of says, am I stealing your thunder? No, here? no, no, go for it. He kind of says to Clytemnestra, look what I brought home. <laughs> this Trojan princess Cassandra. Can, can you take her in and, you know, just show her the facilities kind of thing? Yes, right. And Clytemnestra pretends, oh yeah, I, I can take, uh, who doesn't want a young Trojan princess as a rival in my own home. Yeah, right, right. And the difference, of course, between Aeschylus's version and this one is Aeschylus has Clytemnestra with the blade in her hand. Mm. She's the one who does the killing. She murders Cassandra, and then she murders Agamemnon in the bathtub, mm-hmm. right? And I just, this is crouching behind her. He's not bold enough to do the deed himself. Right. Clytemnestra is a, a killer queen. She's she's really frightening. That was, that was a that was a queen. Well, let's just move on. Okay, sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, and that's what I had in mind. So. so. In, but in Homer's version, it's Aegisthus who does the killing, as we heard in the se- very second page of, yes. of, the, of the epic, right? And so Agamemnon gets a little bit of, you know, poor me um, uh, sympathy in the moment. We don't, we, he doesn't give a lot about the background of why Clytemnestra was legitimately angry at, at him. But then he turns around to say to, to Odysseus, listen, don't let what happened to me happen to you. Yes, and you're going to read us some of that translation, yes. right? right. So here's the, the Rue translation. So Agamemnon says... Never be too trustful, even of your wife, nor show her all that is in your mind. Reveal a little of your plans to her, but keep the rest to yourself. That's just good marriage advice. Isn't I don't it? think so. <laughs> no, 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 what am I, what am I, no, no. You don't have to share everything. Matching <laughs> bath towels, matching bath robes, but the slippers should be separate. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, uh, Agamemnon goes on. Not that your wife, Odysseus, will ever murder you. Acarius's daughter is far too loyal in her thoughts and feelings. The wise Penelope. She was a young woman when we said goodbye to her on our way out to the war. She had a baby son at her breast, and now I suppose he has begun to take his seat among men. Fortunate young man. His loving father will come home and see him, and he will kiss his father. That is how things should be. Hmm. Yeah, so we get here some advice. Agamemnon's going to tell him, don't trust your wife. You gotta, you gotta, how did you put it? I like that. You gotta just park around the corner a little bit and yeah. see what's going on exactly. before you pull into the garage. Right. I mean, I get a feeling that Odysseus would have done that anyway. Definitely. But this is a, a clear, obvious warning to him, mm-hmm. right? And 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 on the heels of all of these horrible stories of what happened uh, to these to these women, stories of murder and, and violence, this is just yet another one. Yes, although it's balanced, right? Because Clytemnestra here is the perpetrator. Yes. I'm not saying Agamemnon treated her well, but her response was definitely disproportionate. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. It's like Medea uh, in later myth. It's the, um, well, the story of Medea is prior to this, but of course I, I'm thinking of Euripides' version. Uh, it's the woman acting heroic and doing to the men what they have been doing to each other. Yes, exactly. And I'm also reminded that you know, Agamemnon is, in some ways, his situation is the antithesis of, of Odysseus, you know, because his wife has been unfaithful. Um, his Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, has been unfaithful. Yeah, exactly right. right, yeah. And when Agamemnon comes home, he doesn't have a loyal son there. Orestes is out of town. Mm-hmm. Orestes comes by later and avenges his father. By killing Clytemnestra. By, by killing mom. Right. right? Um, and, if, of course, you know, Telemachus is waiting there. Yeah. Are we going to do an episode or a series on uh, Agamemnon? I mean, the, the Oresteia trilogy of Aeschylus? I think we have to. Definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, Telemachus has been um, kind of waiting for his father to come home. Penelope has been faithful. Uh, but of course, Odysseus doesn't really know this for himself yet. No, it's been a long time. So then he adds, Agamemnon adds this, also from the Rue translation, do not sail openly in port when you reach your home country. Make a secret approach. Women, I tell you, are no longer to be trusted. But can you give me the truth about my son? Have you and your friends heard of him as still alive in Orchomenos, possibly, or Sandy Pilos, or maybe with Menelaus in the plains of Sparta? For my good Orestes has not yet died and come below. 
So he just wants to know what's going on. He, yeah, wants, so he wants to know about his kid. Right. Very much like when Odysseus asked uh, his mother, Anticlea, what about my dad, Laertes? Yes. What about my son, Telemachus? Agamemnon asks the same question. Where is Orestes? Right. And you notice he says, he imagines Orestes being at Pelos in Sparta. Yeah, the very places where, where Telemachus, Telemachus was. Right, exactly. So Telemachus is the, is the son that Agamemnon wished he had. Yes, this is incredible artistry. Yeah. Anyone who thinks that this was not composed, you know, at least the finishing touches put on it by a poetic uh, genius, I think is just mistaken. Right. It, Everything has purpose. Right. It can have lots of sources, perhaps, smaller apelia, smaller epics, but clearly this was all joined together with enormous artistry. Without a doubt. In the end. So here we are, the main event, the marquee moment, bring onto the stage, Achilles, what's going to happen? This is it. So this is the great meeting between kind of the two great hero types. You have Odysseus, the hero of of brains, and Achilles, the hero of brawn, uh, together again. Uh, but in this very strange circumstance. And where does brawn, where does brute strength get you? It gets you in, out in the uh, the asphodel fields in a place of nothingness, a place of limbo. Right. right? And um, I mean, this is one of those things where it, I read, I guess I read a little bit into it, but uh, I think this is Odysseus' big wake-up call. I think you said last week the role of the academic is to see things that aren't there. That's exactly right. So that's what I'm about to do right now. That's your best quote of the year so far. You Jeff. like that? I love I like that. that. I'm putting it on a t-shirt. Okay. So Achilles comes forward and Odysseus says something to him uh, along the lines of, you are the greatest among us. Uh, you know, we, we're still singing your praises. So, you know, don't lament your death at all. So you must have great digs down here. Yes. So em- I, I mean, employee parking spot. Am I reading too much into that? That Odysseus, in those words, Odysseus is assuming that because of Achilles' greatness on the battlefield, he's got to be he's got to be top dog down here too. No, I don't. I don't think that's reading too much into it. Okay. I think that's really what's uh, in operation. It's a natural conclusion to draw. Yeah. And it's it's at that moment where uh, Achilles throws cold water all over it. Yeah, if I if I can quote just to go back to that for a minute. Yeah, if I can quote the great scholar Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator. Oh yes, one of my favorite scholars. Yes, yeah. what we do in life echoes in eternity. Sound a little bit more British than Australian there. Well, I had to kind of warm up to it a little bit. Yeah, you not you weren't quite ready for that. Then. No, I wasn't. Because pulled that out of your back pocket. I did. Right. Yep. So Odysseus he he comes to this with um, the assumption that great deeds in this life means great reward of the next. They echo in eternity. They echo in eternity, right. Um, but this is where Achilles says, uh, you have no idea what you're talking about, Odysseus. And in Lombardo's translation, uh, Achilles says, don't try to sell me on death, Odysseus. I'd rather be a hired hand back up on earth, slaving away for some poor dirt farmer than lord it over all these withered dead. And then we get this familiar refrain, but tell me about that boy of mine. Uh, did he come to the war, take his place as one of the best, or did he stay away? And what about Peleus, his dad? What have you heard? So again, that, that longing for information, the only thing that matters is the land of the living. And the ordering, right? It's got to be father and son. Yeah. Of course, uh, Achilles had loves of his life, but he doesn't mention them first. Right. It's the focus on tradition and posterity for each one of these male heroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting is Achilles goes on, and I think this is really quite sad and pathetic, um, he, he, he goes beyond what Agamemnon and some of these other say, others say. He says, um, he imagines his father has enemies, and he imagines that um, it, it's gotten so bad that if only he could go there and, and, and wrap his hands around his, his father's enemies' throats, they'd know what it means to face my, face my wrath. Hmm. And it's so pathetic in that he's imagining this violence against his father, mm. right? And because he doesn't know that it's happening, and imagining his retribution and revenge. Exactly right. So what's back? It's that it's that rage that overtook him in the Iliad, right? And so the thing that dehumanized him in the Iliad that he sets aside at the end of the Iliad, now it's back in full force, and it's not even based on fact. That's very insightful. So he he can't escape. I'm just going to repeat some of the things that you're saying yeah. here, so I can try to understand them. He's such a rage-driven character that what occupied him for 23 books of the Iliad, he laid down momentarily in book 24 to ransom Hector's body to uh, Hector's father, Priam. Mm -hmm. But now it comes back to life here in the underworld. And and the most pathetic thing about it, you're saying, is it's not even true. It's not even true. He's driven by the ghosts of revenge, you might say. Yeah, he's, um, he's spending eternity kind of cursed uh, in this really monstrous kind of way. It's awful. Hmm. So what do you think Homer's trying to tell us about that? Is he making some comment about 
the afterlife? Is he making a comment about this life? Don't brood over past wrongs? I mean, that seems kind of moralistic and simple. Yeah. I don't know. I, I always think of it just in terms of that kind of that question we were talking about earlier. What's Odysseus's takeaway? Now, Homer doesn't give us an Odysseus that says, oh, I never thought of it like that. Mm. Right. He, he, but I think this he idea... Doesn't pull out of his pocket a little notebook and say, well, when I get back to Ithaca, I got to make sure not to let past sorrows ruin, you know, the tea time I'm going to enjoy with Penelope. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, but you have to think that Odysseus takes this as a moment of reckoning and that he realizes, oh, my great deeds, my great tricks aren't going to land me in the house at the top of the hill in, um, in the in, underworld, in some kind of paradise, mm. he sees this is what's waiting for him. If this happened to Achilles, what hope do I have? Mm-hmm. And so it brings us back to kind of that, that first word of the epic. It's it's this is it's about the Andra. Andra. The only thing that really matters is this life in the here and now. So there's an afterlife, but it's not meaningful. No, it's the uh, again the 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 only meaning is in the mortal world. Mm. So we move on from here, from Achilles. We go on to the next character that he meets, which is Ajax. Yes, it's a very brief encounter. Yes. And how do they interact? What's, what's, the, uh, what's the response that Odysseus is able to get from this Ajax Telamon, the second greatest of all the heroes? Right. He, he, he gets no response at all. He gets the stiff arm. The cold shoulder. The cold shoulder. So, um, and those shoulders in the underworld? Oh, chilly. They're very cold. Very chilly. Right. <laughs> so Ajax, uh, of course, he's, he famously commits suicide after um, you know, losing this contest to Odysseus. Right, about the weapons of Achilles. We need to mention that to give context to the listener. Yeah, we, take us through that, that well, episode. I'm remembering mostly from Ovid's version in the Metamorphoses, but what happens is that after Achilles' death, there is a mostly unused uh, suit of armor mm-hmm. recently made by Hephaestus at the bequest of Thetis, Achilles' mother. Everybody with me now? So Achilles, remember, gave his armor in the Iliad to Patroclus, who then was killed by Hector. So now Achilles needs a new suit of armor, and his mother Thetis, the silver-footed, goes to Hephaestus and says, my son needs a new suit of armor. He gets one. Achilles then dies not long after, and so they're going to just post it on, you know, uh, Facebook Marketplace or, you know, the neighborhood app, but instead they say, why don't we have a contest and see who can get this great armor? The two main combatants for the armor, that's the prize, are Odysseus and Ajax. And the question is, who's the greatest soldier? Who's the greatest warrior? And Ajax then lists all his kills and everything that he has done valiantly on the battlefield. And Odysseus upstages him by saying, yeah, you know, you might swing the axe more strongly. You might thrust the sword. But everybody who is here, including Achilles, is here because I persuaded them to be here. Mm. So the man of speech actually bests the man of action every time. And he persuades the rest of the jury, the other Greek chieftains, and Odysseus then gets this splendid armor that was originally Achilles. Ajax doesn't take this well. No, he does not. So um, I, I believe this is also from Ovid as well. So he, he plots revenge. He's been so shamed by this that he's going to, he plans to murder a number of his fellow Greeks. Yes. And do you think that he got a fair deal in the judgment? Is it, was it meant to be a specious, ridiculous argument? I don't think so. I think I've always read that scene as this is a passing of the torch um, from kind of the, the, the brute brawn hero to the trickster character, um, the, the, the man with a facility f- for words and, and craftiness. So it's Ka- a Superman versus Batman kind of thing. Yeah, I think to a certain degree. Yeah, Superman is pretty much indestructible, but he doesn't have a special belt or any other powers. Right, right, right. Whereas Batman is tricky. He's tricky. Yep, he's a trickster. So Ajax plans to murder some of his fellow Greeks in in a bloody revenge. Athena sees this coming, uh, causes a a madness to a fog in front of his eyes. And so when he he goes out, thinks that he's murdering Greeks, he's actually slaughtering a herd of cattle. Yes, Um, or sheep. Sheep, right. Yeah. And then when he sees, when the madness falls from his eyes and he sees what he's done, he's so, you know, doubly shamed by this that he uh, commits suicide. And then in the underworld, Odysseus attempts to have a rapprochement with... Um, Was that French? Yeah, you like that? I like that. That's good. <laughs> he tries to patch things up. Yeah. Not French. With Ajax, but he doesn't succeed. Yeah. Ajax just refuses to talk to him. Right. Again, he's, he's consumed with that shame, that dishonor. So again, is there a little lesson here? Well, I think maybe the lesson is 
I won't repeat the, uh, the accent, but the things that we do now, they have some impact in the next life. There's a limit on that because Achilles great glory means nothing in the next life. Right. But the grudges and the pains and the sorrows, they do seem to follow these individuals to the world below. Yeah. And it can't be undone. It's too late. Odysseus wanted to hug it out. Yes, he he, he did. He did. Yeah. But he got nowhere. Right. Now, the one exception to this, and we're going to go a little off topic here, is that in the second play of the Oresteia trilogy that we were mentioning, uh, written by Aeschylus, you know, the Agamemnon, and it's the libation bearers. Mm -hmm. So Agamemnon meets Iphigenia in the underworld. Oh, yeah. His daughter, uh, for whose death he's responsible, he had her sacrificed so they could sail to Troy. Iphigenia walks up and places her hand on Agamemnon's face in a gesture of gentleness and supplication and really of forgiveness. Mm. But interestingly, that's a woman, right? None of the heroes really lament or repent. Uh, but Iphigenia does. That's a really interesting comparison. Yeah. Now we really have to do the Oresteia. Yes, we do. Yeah. That's one of my favorite scenes, in fact, of all Greek myth or Greek legend history, because it's it's just so touching. Yeah, that's fascinating. We don't if we, in this book here. We don't see the dead interacting with each other. No, it's, it's just the dead interacting with Odysseus. It, that, I think that's right, isn't it? Yes, I can't think yeah. of a single instance. Right. Much again like the DMV, right? You interact with the person behind the counter, but not with each other. <laughs> no. Not under any circumstances. No, 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 no. So before we finish up, we have two little vignettes we want to focus on for a moment. Mm-hmm. One is when Odysseus gets to see all of the famous sinners. And the second one, of course, is his brief, brief encounter with Heracles. Yes. So let's deal first with the famous sinners. And let me read a little bit here from Lombardo. And I saw there... Tantalus in his agony, standing in a pool with water up to his chin. He was mad with thirst, but unable to drink. For every time the old man bent over, the water would drain away and vanish, dried up by some god, and only black mud would be left at his feet. Above him dangled treetop fruits, pears and pomegranates, shiny apples, sweet figs, and luscious olives. But whenever Tantalus reached up for them, the wind tossed them high to the shadowy clouds." Now, we remember what his crime was. Remember, he tried to take his son Pelops, who was Zeus's grandson or great-grandson, and feed Pelops to the gods. Right. He wanted to test the gods' omniscience. So he chopped him up, fed him to the gods, and none of them were tricked except... It was uh, Demeter. Demeter, right? yes. yeah, not too bright. Yeah. And uh, so she took a bite out of his shoulder, and then Zeus restored it with an ivory prosthetic. Yes. So Pelops went on to, you know, be the, the king of the entire Peloponnesus, mm-hmm. commit some of his own crimes. But here's Tantalus's punishment. Always thirsty, never drinking. Always hungry, never eating. So intermittent fasting to the extreme, you might say. Yes, and you have kind of that, those taboos of, of murder, but also a kind of cannibalism yes. in, involved. Kindred bloodshed, especially. Don't, exactly. Don't kill someone in your own family. Yeah. And it strikes me as, as I look at you know some of these other, you know, quote unquote, sinners here, uh, Titios and Sisyphus, um, a lot of them are guilty of the very things that we saw going on in that parade of women. You're right. Yeah. They did things that the gods did, but they don't get away with it. So maybe there's, again, the artistry of, of kind of one scene commenting on another. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm just thinking aloud here. That hadn't occurred to me before. Well, we can take it out in post if you decide you don't like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. <laughs> I want to talk about Sisyphus a second. Yeah, please. I, I saw Sisyphus there in his agony, reading Lombardo, pushing a monstrous stone with his hands. Digging in hard, he would manage to shove it to the crest of a hill. But just as he was about to heave it over the top, the shameless stone would teeter back and bound down to the plain. That's an excellent translation, by the way. That is really good. Then he would, uh, thank you, uh, Stan, then he would strain every muscle to push it back up, sweat pouring from his limbs and dusty head. So he's fully employed, right? There's no unemployment in Sisyphus' life, Sisyphus's life, but it's completely unproductive. Yes. And here I want to mention, just as a sidelight, one of my favorite economists. Oh, please do. Okay. Where's so, this coming from? <laughs> this is the economist Frederick Bastiat, a French economist, 1801 to 1850. He coined the term Sisyphism. Hmm. So you've probably heard of tantalizing, right? Something is tantalizing, you really want it, but you can't have it. He came up with the term Sisyphism, which means a state of full employment. Everybody's busy but nobody's doing anything productive. Ah, I've never heard that before. Isn't that a nice, that's great. A nice word? That's great. It characterizes a lot of my life, right? <laughs> what are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing so much. What for? No idea. Right. Busy, busy, busy. Yeah, I gotta do it. Gotta do it. I'm a stone pushing uphill man. <laughs> so we go on from there then, Sisyphus, to... 
Heracles. Heracles. Mm -hmm. And what's Heracles doing down there? Well, uh, he also is on a quest. Remember, he's got to go down to the underworld and retrieve the three-headed dog. And I don't know how they coordinated schedules. But that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he had a a slight layover and, uh, you know, Odysseus just stumbled in from gate A37 and... (laughs) What are you doing down here? They, they both just, had to renew their license. Correct. They just <laughs> bumped into each other. And then, says Lombardo, mighty Heracles loomed up before me. His phantom, that is. For Heracles himself feasts with the gods and has as his wife beautiful Hebe, daughter of great Zeus and gold-sandaled Hera. As he moved, a clamor arose from the dead around him as if they were birds flying off in terror. He looked like midnight himself. He held his bow with an arrow on the string and he glared around him. Then they have the briefest exchange right before the book ends. Now, in this exchange, Odysseus doesn't really speak to Hercules, but Hercules, or Heracles, asks him some questions. Are you down here, crafty Odysseus, poor man, dragging out a wretched destiny? Heracles then gives a brief thumbnail of how he's working for Eurystheus. He's sent here to fetch the hound of hell, the hardest task. But before Odysseus can respond, it's not a real dialogue, Heracles heads back into the house of Hades, I stayed where I was, Lombardo says, in case any more of the heroes of yesteryear might yet come forth. So this is what you were saying, Jeff, that Odysseus never misses an opportunity to learn something, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't seem like it's directly related to the plot. Right. Uh, Homer also associates, I think by associating him with with Heracles, you know, we have these two heroes doing a similar kind of deed. He puts him in that kind of that that larger family of heroes. Um, It, uh, I think it raises Odysseus's stature. Definitely. Right. And, And Heracles' words, too. Uh, going to emphasize that this isn't all grandeur and glory. This is part of suffering. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be here. No. Yeah. Heroes I long to meet, just to conclude, Theseus and Perithous, glorious sons of the gods. But before I could, the nations of the dead came thronging up with an eerie cry. And I turned pale with fear that Persephone would send from Hades' depths the pale head of that monster, the Gorgon. Always afraid of Medusa. Yeah, nice plot device, Homer, to get Odysseus out of the underworld. Well, I got to go because Medusa could show up at any time. Right, and and, and also dropping another epic tradition. Yeah, Perseus, the reference. I went to the ship at once and called to my men to get aboard and untie the stern cables. They boarded quickly and sat at their benches. The current bore the ship down the river ocean. We rode it first and then caught a good tailwind. And that's where it ends. So that wraps it up uh, for the most part, but we we promised the listener at the very beginning of this episode, we're going to compare a little bit this question of resurrection, Mm -hmm. a Christian view of resurrection as opposed to, or maybe consonant with, what happens here in Book 11. So what do you think about these themes, Jeff? Well, I think the death and resurrection motif is all over, uh, I mean, not only Greek myth or, you know, Greek hero stories, um, but epic traditions around the world. This idea of the catabasis of, of facing death, of confronting mortality, your own mortality, and getting beyond it is something that a hero does. Now, what does that accomplish? Um, in term- or, or why is it there? Why is it there? Well, Can I, it be explained? I think it's, in some ways, it's, it's the story. It's, it's the, in some ways, the universal story. Um, in kind of a Joseph Campbell kind of way. You just, you see it everywhere. And you see this idea filter into things, I mean, sticking with the Greeks and the Romans for now, into mystery traditions like the Eleusinian Mysteries and uh, the uh, Mysteries of Mithras, where there is uh, worshipers do a kind of performative catabasis. They go to death and they come back to it. And there it clearly has a, a more kind of deeply spiritual, transformative uh, sense to it. Although those people don't really die. They don't really die. They're supposed to be participating in the story yeah. of someone else who died. Right. But it's the it's the power of that metaphor. And so like with the Eleusinian mysteries, um, Persephone goes to death, not just goes to death, but marries death and returns. And so by kind of following her in that tradition, you experience a, a similar kind of transformation. So I think all of that is kind of what Odysseus does here, what Heracles does here is all part and parcel of kind of this larger, grander idea of the cycle of death and resurrection. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, um, I think we should do a separate episode, of course, on the mystery religions. We should spend oh, some time there. without a doubt, yeah. Uh, but as I thought about this, and you might remember that when we were in Greece together in 2011, 
Uh, you gave a lecture. Um, I don't remember where it was. It was not far from the Necromantion. Mm-hmm. But you gave a lecture about this, and that inspired me to draw up some of the distinctions between Christianity and the mystery religions. This uh, a lecture I gave on Eleusis? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes, and uh, and the, the idea of catabasis and descent. So there are some salient differences. Uh, clearly, there are many, many prima facie or surface similarities. Yeah. But I kind of follow the uh, Edith Hamilton, C.S. Lewis line, which is the surface similarities are vastly outweighed by the the deep um, subsurface differences. Mm-hmm. Now, Lewis said that uh, these were actually kind of satanic counterfeits. Now, I don't know how anyone could ever know that uh, mm. if it's true. But in other words, that in the pagan world, you have all of these near resurrections deliberately to confuse in a malevolent fashion those who might believe in Christ's resurrection. Now they have something that's close but not the real thing, so it catches them in error. Now, I don't know if that's true or if anybody could possibly know if it's true, but here are some of the differences. The persons who descend uh, are demigods, right? They yeah. are half human, half God. Uh, in the Christian descent, the person who descends is, is fully God. Also, and that might seem like a small or technical difference, and, and maybe on the surface it is, but I think it has profound implications. Another key difference is that Odysseus doesn't really die. And Aeneas doesn't die. Right. And in fact, many of these persons are not dead. They're visitors. Um, and in the case of the Christian death and resurrection, I think the Gospels are uh, going to great lengths to prove Christ's death. Yes. He's actually a dead person. And then I guess maybe the third difference is um, why it happened. Right. In, in the Christian story, um, Christ dies with a specific reason in mind, and he does it for a specific purpose, which is not at all related to himself, yeah. or at least only tangentially. Whereas each one of these heroes, um, as we've said with Odysseus, he needs some information, but it's very self-focused, and it's kind of just a lark in yeah. some ways. It's, it's an adventure. Right, right, right. It's a right. side trip. It doesn't have any deep sense of purpose. Right. And maybe that's not entirely fair to some of these catabases. Yeah. Uh, maybe Aeneas's catabasis in uh, book six of the Aeneid, maybe that has some more significance, but um, that's how I see things at this point. Yeah. I'm certainly on, on board, on board with that. I would add to that uh, also a difference, you know, somebody going through the Eleusinian mysteries, um, that doesn't make you an Eleusinian for the rest of your life. You know, you're free to continue to worship these other gods and, and do other initiations if you wanted. And so there's that claim of exclusivity right? Uh, and the finality of Christ's death and resurrection, which is also an, a major difference. The, the Christian faith made and makes absolutist claims yes. in a way that the these myth stories don't. Is, right. that, is that what you're saying? Sure. And, and I would also add that but I certainly think that by the time the story of Christ's death and resurrection starts to circulate in the Roman world in the in the first and second centuries, that world had been well prepared for that story. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the idea of death and resurrection as a as a powerful central thing would have shocked your everyday you know, pagan Greek or Roman. I agree with that completely. But the, I think they were ready for the details of the story. Yes, even if the meaning was quite different. Exactly right. I think, I think the exclusivity and the literalness of it would have shocked them. Yes, um, but the idea would be, uh, yeah, I know that story. Um, let me rattle off 12 stories in which that kind of thing happens, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. So the opening quote, Machen, paganism yeah. is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature. I don't think we really saw that here in the underworld, uh, except maybe Odysseus. He escapes, but there's otherwise not a lot of optimism. Not optimism, but I, mean, I, I think maybe we, we certainly do see Odysseus recognizing that where you're going to find meaning is it stops at the self, right? It stops with kind of current living humanity. What you can do, what you can achieve. Right. There's not a hope beyond that. Yes. Right. So I, I think we see what Ma- what Machen is, is, is talking about. Hmm. But yeah, maybe optimism isn't the, the, the best word I used to describe. Right. What, yeah. Well, we have to wrap things up, dear listener. We got to get out of here, don't we, Jeff? We do. Who's beating on our door out there? Well, today there's a uh, an obscure British organization, the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society, UCRAS, U-K-R-A-S. They just, they appreciate the roundabout? Yeah, they do. And they think that, uh, yeah, I'm cribbing here from some online notes. Don't accuse me of plagiarism. Go check it out. 
They think that any straight, uh, rectilinear stretch of road is dull and boring. I, I have to agree with them Do there. Yes. So they want to uh, populate the world with roundabouts, and I think they're coming to West Michigan. Yes. And they're holding their meeting here in our own vomitorium. The vomitorium is, is kind of on a curved road. I can see how they, wa- they wound up here. Yeah, wound up here. Ah, <laughs> so man. we got to get out of here, don't we? We do. So, Jeff, what's on the menu for next week? Oh, very exciting. We are interviewing uh, Ed Watts. A professor, a classicist, historian. Yes, ancient historian. Ancient historian. UC San Diego. Yes. Wrote and, this brilliant book. Yes, called Mortal Republic, uh, which is about the kind of examining what what caused Rome's republic to crumble and become an empire. Yes, fascinating interview. Brilliant scholar. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dave, you could tell us about the Moss Method? Yeah, I want to say just a few words. You want to study some Greek, be able to read those lines of Homer like I was doing yeah, more or less successfully today. You can come to mossmethod.com. It's expert, self-paced, and accessible. Check it out, mossmethod.com. Thanks, as always, to our engineer, Mishka, for all the fine work you do in putting this all together. Thank you so much. Listeners, uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, leave a review of our podcast on your favorite platform. Uh, you got questions, suggestions, complaints. Uh, write to us uh, at dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or jeff at adnauseum.com. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot this week, right? I do. This is from famous children's author Kate DiCamillo. She wrote The Tale of Despero. My kids love that. And she says, the average squirrel cogitation goes something like this. I wonder what there is to eat. That's great. Thanks for listening. Hoya Saksa. Saksa.